The following podcast contains explicit language. I think the effect will probably, in some areas, give ISIS some more propaganda. He called me up, he said, put a commission together, show me the right way to do it legally. And if there are folks that shouldn't be in this country, they're going to be detained. And so, apologize for nothing here. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who says the mess at airports over the weekend wasn't because of his executive order, it was because of a Delta computer glitch. Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So I want to tell you a story about refugees. My mother died last year, and I spent some time going through her family papers. One of the things I found was a folder labeled 1940 Immigration, Jewish Relatives. It was a thick packet of letters and cables that told the amazing story of how my grandparents in Chicago helped a family of distant relations escape the Nazis. They were called the Teitelmans. Saul Teitelman had a knitting business of some kind in Frankfurt, and by 1938, he was desperate to get his wife and two daughters out of Nazi Germany. Here's what he wrote to my grandparents. At all events, we do not want to lose hope for it would be impossible to live here any longer in our situation without hope. My grandfather wrote to anybody he thought might be able to help. He wrote to congressional aides. He wrote to the State Department. He wrote to the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. I think he even went to Washington to bang on doors in person. And finally, in February 1940, after the war was underway in Europe, the title month finally got a visa to go to America. My grandparents called all their relatives to scrape together the money for their third-class tickets. The Teitelmans caught what was literally the last boat leaving Holland for the United States. I was thinking about those letters on Friday, when Donald Trump issued his executive order banning immigration for people who happened to be Muslim. For American Jews like me, those scenes we saw over the weekend, refugees caught up in a bureaucratic system and treated like criminals, hold a special resonance. We know that we're only alive because our ancestors at some point finagled their way into a country where they weren't entirely welcome. So when we see the exodus of the Syrians from Aleppo or Yazidis fleeing ISIS, we see ourselves. I think that's why many of the Syrian refugees who are trying to clear immigration before the deadline on Friday were being met by groups from synagogues. I think it may also explain why most of the CEOs who are finally standing up to Donald Trump over this repulsive and un-American order, have names like Schultz, Zuckerberg, and Blankfein. I promise we're going to come back to the Muslim ban. But today's show is about something else that happened over the weekend, which was sort of drowned out by the roar of the protests and the big news. Trump had his first phone call with Vladimir Putin. And this is one story we can't let drop on Trumpcast for two simple reasons. The first is that the Russian hacking during the election is casting a cloud over Donald Trump's legitimacy as president. The second is that Trump's pro-Kremlin policies, which may or may not be connected to Putin's intervention on his behalf, are casting a cloud over the foreign relations of the United States. To talk about that, I've got someone here in the studio who Mr. Putin would very much like to see dead or in jail. He's the investor and author William Browder. And I'll be back with him right after we do the tweets.
the failing New York Times has been wrong about me from the very beginning. Said I would lose the primaries, then the general election. Fake news. The coverage about me in the New York Times and the Washington Post has been so false and angry that the Times actually apologized to its dwindling subscribers and readers. They got me wrong right from the beginning and still have not changed course and never will. Dishonest. Somebody with aptitude and conviction should buy the fake news and failing New York Times and either run it correctly or let it fold with dignity. The joint statement of former presidential candidates John McCain and Lindsey Graham is wrong. They are sadly weak on immigration. The two senators should focus their energies on ISIS, illegal immigration, and border security instead of always looking to start World War III. There is nothing nice about searching for terrorists before they can enter a country. This was a big part of my campaign. Study the world. I'm pleased to have in the studio today Bill Browder. He is the author of the New York Times number one bestseller, Red Notice, and the head of the Magnitsky Justice Campaign, which if you've read Red Notice, you'll understand what that is. And if you haven't read Red Notice, you should read it because it's an amazing book about corruption in Russia and about Bill's story. Bill, for people who don't don't know about Sergei Magnitsky and you and Russia – Give us a quick version. I mean, you were at one point, as a very young man, the biggest foreign investor in Russia. Is that right? <clears throat> yeah, exactly. So so I am – first of all, just a, a tiny bit of family background. My grandfather was the head of the American Communist Party. And so as my uh, – Earl Browder, a uh, famous name to anyone who studied the history of the American left. Indeed, and a cover of Time magazine, everything. And so um, in my teenage rebellion um, to – Rebel from my family of communists. I became a capitalist. I finished uh, Stanford Business School in 1989, which was the year the Berlin Wall came down. And um, as I was looking for a job, I thought to myself, well, if my grandfather was the biggest communist in America and the Berlin Wall has come down, I'm going to become the biggest capitalist in Eastern Europe. And that's what I set out to do. And that's what I actually ended up doing. I ended up running um, an investment fund that I set up in Russia called the Hermitage Fund. It went from zero to four and a half billion dollars of assets, and I was the largest foreign investor in Russia. Um, in the process um, of being a big foreign investor, I discovered that the companies that I was investing in were being robbed blind by these people called the oligarchs. I was very upset by it for a while, and then I decided that the best thing I could do to try to stop the stealing was to research how they did it and then expose them, which I did. I exposed a lot of stealing of Russian oligarchs, and as you might imagine, that that eventually um, led to problems in Russia. And um, in 2005, I was uh, flying back to Moscow after a weekend trip to London. I arrived in Moscow at the airport, and I was 
quickly grabbed by the immigration officers, taken down to the basement detention center of the airport, uh, locked up overnight, and then deported the next day and declared a threat to national security. And you were super lucky. <clears throat> you were super lucky you got put on a plane and sent back to London, right? Because I well, uh, can't imagine what might have happened to you otherwise. Well, there's kind of three options. They could have killed me, um, they could have put me in prison in Russia, or they could have deported me. So I would say that that was a pretty big gift not to do the other two. So I'm back in London. I have this big um, operation in Moscow and, and a bunch of people and a bunch of money over there. And, and uh, I don't want any of the people to get arrested or or any of my assets to be seized. So I got took got, got all my people evacuated, took all the um, got all the money quickly and quietly out of the country and dusted off my hands and thought that that's the end of the story. It turns out that it wasn't the end of any story. It was the beginning of what could be objectively categorized as the worst nightmare anyone could ever have. 18 months after I was expelled, my offices were raided by the Moscow police. They um, seized all of our documents. And then the next thing we knew, we no longer owned our investment holding companies through which we had invested in Russia. Now, I didn't have any money left in Russia because we t had taken it all out. But uh, the fact that the police were busy raiding our offices and seizing things uh, gave me great concern. And so I went out and hired a lawyer named Sergei Magnitsky to help me investigate. And Sergei investigated, and he figured out that the reason that they had stolen my my companies was to steal $230 million of taxes that I had paid to the Russian government. So Sergei figures that out. We um, uh, expose the people who did the stealing. He testifies against them. And then the same people he testified against came to his home at eight in the morning, arrested him, put him in pretrial detention, tortured him for 358 days, and then killed him at the age of 37 on November 16th, 2009, seven years ago. And ever since then, I've been on a campaign to get the people who killed him and make them face justice. And amazingly, you got a bill passed in Congress and signed by the president, the Magnitsky Act, which has sanctions specifically against people who who have responsibility in connection with the judicial murder. But it goes beyond the, even that, right? Well, so what happened was I, I um, um, when, when the, the so I, I tried to get justice inside of Russia, and it became quickly clear that they were not going to um, prosecute anybody. That they were going to exonerate um, the people involved. They even gave some of the people who were most complicit uh, awards and state honors. And so I, um, I then went to Washington and said, if I can't get justice inside of Russia, let's see if we can get justice outside of Russia. I went to Washington. And I met a Democratic senator from Maryland um, named Benjamin Cardin. I met a Republican senator from Arizona that everybody knows, John McCain. And I told them the story of what happened to Sergey. And I said, "Can we, can we get a law placed put in, put on the books which do, which uh, forbids these people from traveling to America and uh, freezes any assets they have in America?" And they said, "Yeah." And so that was the Magnitsky Act. Originally, it was just for Sergey. They put it on the books in October of 2010. And then all sorts of other Russian victims of terrible atrocities started coming forward to them and said, you found the Achilles heel of the Putin regime. They steal money in Russia and then they keep it in the West. Can you add the people who killed my brother to your list? Can you add the people who killed my father, my aunt, my sister? And after about a dozen of these approaches, these two senators said, wait a second, we're on to something much bigger than just one case. This is the new technology for dealing with Russia. And so they created the Magnitsky Act by adding another 65 words to say not just the people who killed Sergei, but the people who do other terrible atrocities. 
And then this thing got huge momentum throughout the Congress and, and when it went for a vote, it passed 92 to four in the Senate. It passed 89% of the House of Representatives. And I should point out that, that at the time, uh, President Obama didn't want to do this. He was, he had this idea of what he called resetting relations with Russia. He was, he wanted to sort of make nice with Putin, but Congress wouldn't let him. And so in the end, he signed it on December 14th, 2012 into law. There are now 45 people on the U.S. federal sanctions list that have visas canceled, assets frozen, and basically can't open a bank account anywhere in the world because they're, they're basically persona non grata in the world financial system because of this law. And this law is, has effectively been the, been the template that the, that the um, U.S. government then used when um, Russia invaded uh, Ukraine. This was the basis of it. And so this has been absolutely neuralgic for Vladimir Putin. I mean, they he passed something that's referred to as the Anti-Magnitsky Act, restricting adoptions in America of sick Russian orphans. And, you know, it's it's clearly just the major, major sore point. And cutting right to the present now, presumably in his conversation with Donald Trump, conversation a lot of people would very much like to listen to, He's going to say, can you get the Magnitsky Act repealed, right? Putin has got a bunch of things on his list. Um, the Magnitsky th- uh, Act is, is one of, one of the top four or five things he, he, that really upsets him dramatically. And he's going to ask Trump to do all of them. He's going to ask Trump to um, get rid of the Magnitsky Act. He's going to ask Trump to uh, get rid of the Ukraine sanctions. He's going to ask Trump to withdraw um, NATO troops from bordering countries and uh, various other things. Now, the, the interesting thing about the Magnitsky Act is that this was an act of Congress, which means that if um, Putin says to Trump, you, we want you to get rid of this thing, Trump then has to go to Congress and he's got to find uh, 60 senators and, and – You say 94 of them voted for it. I mean, right. yeah, and, people and, and, on record on this. And most of the guys are still there and, and none of them – I mean, I can guarantee that um, unless there's some cataclysm in the world – He's not going to find those senators to um, to basically allow Russian torturers and murderers now to come to America. I, don't, I think that's just a non-starter. How, Whereas the Ukraine sanctions, he can essentially do on his own. Well, exactly. So if Obama had been more cooperative with me, um, he would have just signed an executive order sanctioning these people. But because he wasn't, we got a, a law in Congress. With Ukraine, he, he just signed a piece of paper saying, let's sanction Russia over Ukraine, which means that it's very easy for, for Trump to make that go away if he wants to. He can just sign another piece of paper to say there are no sanctions. And there are rumors flying around as we speak that these sanctions will be lifted. So, Bill, you you went from uh, being a somewhat naive businessman who was surprised by the extent of corruption in Russia when you first started to do business there to being like the most wised up person about how corrupt and criminal Putin's Russia is. So what's your take on topic A? I mean, this is a story that's in danger of being overshadowed by it, by everything else. But we have this bizarre anomaly that nobody has persuasively explained about Trump's consistent support and liking for Vladimir Putin. So it it doesn't make any sense to me. I I look at the whole situation and I, I say to myself, he's a Republican. Um, uh, I, I had an easier time with Republicans than Democrats um, convincing everybody else in his party that um, that Putin was a effectively a gangster. It, it's uh, it wasn't a hard conversation. 
Um, he surrounded himself by people who have that view, his defense secretary, his head of the CIA, his head of Homeland Security, various others are all absolutely convinced of the evil of Putin and his bad intentions. And most importantly, Trump's base. Uh, these are not people who have any. There was any, no constituency for, for making better friends with Vladimir Putin. It doesn't make any sense to me. So um, uh, the only person around him who seems to think this is a good idea is his um, uh, strategy director, Steve Bannon, who has, has stated he wants to sort of organize a sort of the white Christians against the, the evil Muslims around the world. And Russia falls into the category of white Christians. But otherwise, it doesn't make any sense to me. And, and um, I don't understand it. Um, a lot of things that, that the president has announced um, as a rational uh, economist doesn't make sense to impose tariffs and lots of other things. And so I don't know whether it's, it's, um, it's ideological or whether there's pressure or, uh, you know, it's not, it's not clear to me what, what, uh, what, what makes this whole thing happen. But it's odd to everybody who looks at it. It's odd to all the people in, around him. And so I'm hoping that maybe, maybe uh, this is the, the one thing that he promised during his campaign <laughs> That he doesn't fulfill. I mean, the one thing that's interesting about Trump is that he's not a politician. And unlike any other politician, he, he um, he's actually doing everything he said he was going to do on the campaign trail. It's just a lot of those things don't don't appeal to, to many people uh, who I'm around. Yeah, disturbingly so far. But but let's well, let's talk about what the let's engage in some informed speculation about what might be going on. So there was this dossier, this 33 or 35 page document, which was which BuzzFeed published and that I imagine you've now read. I've certainly read it, has has all sorts of wild allegations about the Russian effort, long term effort to cultivate Donald Trump, about connections between the Trump campaign and the Kremlin and the DNC hack, and then some crazy sexualized stuff about how they might be blackmailing I'm not asking you to speculate about whether that's true. But we have this document, which was put together by a former MI6 British intelligence agent who has sources in Russia, probably Eastern European intelligence services. services. What do you make of it? Well, I, I have a bit of um, background. Uh, so so we, we all – everybody who I've talked to says that the guy who prepared it is a credible former British spy. Christopher <clears throat> Steele. Indeed. However, the person who commissioned him to do it is a guy who's not credible at all. Um, it's a guy named Glenn Simpson. Former Wall Street Journal political reporter who runs this or this company that was paid to produce this report. So Glenn Simpson runs a company in Washington, D.C. called uh, Fusion GPS. Uh, Fusion GPS is a um, – they call it an opposition research firm. But I, I would go much further than that to say it's, it's sort of a professional smear campaigning firm. It's a firm that if you have an enemy and you want to try to ruin their reputation, you can hire Glenn Simpson and he'll go out and do his best to do that. And how do I know about this? Because Glenn Simpson had been hired at the same time that the um, that this that he had commissioned this anti-Trump dossier. He had been hired to prepare on behalf of and paid for by Russians who are um, close to the. Putin regime, a dossier on how, why me and Sergei Magnitsky are bad guys and how the U.S. government should repeal the Magnitsky Act. This was after the act passed. What was the context? Was this when your book came out? or This was last summer at the same exact moment that they had been commissioned to go after Trump. And what, what Talk they, about working both sides of the street. Well, exactly. So now it gets even worse than that because the person um, who Glenn Simpson was working with was a, was a Russian man – 
in Washington a former GRU agent named Renat Akhmetshin. GRU's military intelligence. Is Russian military intelligence. And that's the organization that was recently sanctioned for its involvement in the hacking. hacking. So Glenn Simpson is working with a Russian spy, effectively, being paid by the Russian government to come up with, with a bunch of allegations which, which he knew was false when he made them to the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, etc., about the Magnitsky Act. He, for example, was on the record, or not on the record, but, but, but whispering to journalists that Sergei Magnitsky hadn't been murdered, that he died of natural causes, that Sergei Magnitsky wasn't a whistleblower, that he, um, that he was um, a crook. And he was doing this with the, on the payroll of the Russians to try to get the thing that Putin most hates, the Magnitsky Act, repealed in Congress. And so it, and that got back to you through reporters who presumably didn't publish any of this, but you have a lot of relationships in the press. So I, I had lots of reporters come to me and say, Glenn Simpson has been marketing these stories about you and about Sergei Magnitsky and, and et cetera, et cetera. And so he didn't end up getting any major stories written, but I, I know for a fact that he, he was a, he was spreading knowingly false information based on payments from the Russian government, which raises very serious. So when I, when I heard about him being behind the dossier, whatever was written in, in it, whether it was plausible or not, I thought it must be completely false because I know that that's what he does for a living. And so then the question is, <laughs> you know, wh- whose side is he on and what, what, what's the purpose of this dossier? And, um, you know, it, th- that's when, when we, you know, you start getting into double, triple fake outs as to who, who's, who's doing what to whom here. Right. So it's like a hall of mirrors. I mean, if he's, if he's in effect being, Paid by by Russian intelligence to discredit you, and then someone is paying him to find out what Russian intelligence is doing. It, yes, it suggests these are well. I guess they could be uncoordinated, but that sounds like a risky risky business to be in. Well, it all it all gets very murky, and it gets and it gets into. Um, I mean, effectively, I mean, just so you know, we we wrote a, a criminal complaint to the Department of Justice um, to the um, uh, about Glenn Simpson and his work on behalf of of the Russian government. Because you you have to register as a foreign agent, correct? If you're doing that. If, if did he, he, and he didn't register? He didn't register. No, um, and so he was not generally referred to in the reporting about the dossier as a registered Russian agent. No, no. He, but you're saying he is. Well, I'm saying I know for a fact that yeah. he t- he took money. Um, from from the son of a Russian government official um, to try to act on behalf of of interests of the Russian government to repeal one of the things that Putin most hates, and so the, 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 now we so we so we get into a highly complex uh, situation, and I, I don't know what to think. But what I do know is that if it had come from anyone other than Glenn Simpson, uh, I wouldn't have discounted uh, that dossier immediately. But I did because it comes from Glenn Simpson, who's who's a, a, a effectively a, a sort of uh, a clever fantasist about um, bad things and, and people. And a paid fantasist. Well, what you're telling me is pretty interesting here, Bill, but, and it sort of underscores the, the point, I think, that, God, do we need an independent investigation of this? I mean, Trump's ties to Russia are bizarre, inexplicable, filled with stuff like this that points to all sorts of corruption and de- deception. And we need somebody we trust to lead an investigation into this. Is there well, any hope that's going to happen? Well, the whole thing has to be nonpartisan because at the moment that anyone says anything about anything, everyone's just, you know, there's, there's like the guys for Trump and the guys against Trump and everyone's just pointing right. the fingers and saying and, – and, and I've seen on both sides, everybody has just completely given up on, on what's true. Everyone has just got, gotten into their partisan corners. So if there's some way that someone can find somebody who's totally beyond reproach – 
to, to investigate this, then that would actually get to the bottom of it. But, you know, if the U.S. government under the instructions of, of the president <laughs> is investigating, that's not credible. And, and if some opposition research group is investigating, that's not credible either. But I would like to see uh, John McCain or, you know, senator, some senators, bipartisan group of senators with some reputation demand a select committee or, a, or, or in some, some sort of independent. In, in, in le- unless, <clears throat> unless something is done, uh, there's a credibility issue here. There's a legitimacy issue here. There is a legitimacy issue because there there is at least some suspicion worth investigating that the Trump campaign was conniving with the Kremlin to do this. I mean, there were some some really sort of suggestive details about, you know, Roger Stone knowing what was going to come out from WikiLeaks before it came out. And, you know, you start to sound a little paranoid, but there's stuff here that needs to be looked into. And you can't just move on and say, oh, the election's over because it effectively could amount to an argument they stole the election. Well, whether they stole the election or not, I don't know. But but if if there is any if there was any Russian influence over this whole situation and all of a sudden there's a dramatic U-turn in Russian um, foreign policy from the United States, which is advantageous to Russia, I think all this any any Russia policy should probably be stopped until we get to the bottom of the story because we can't possibly feel good about capitulating to Putin at the same time as all this stuff is hanging over. I mean, what you just said is not speculative. It's descriptive. I mean, we know the Russians interfered in the election with meaningful impact. And we know that Donald Trump is in the process of changing our relationship with Russia because he said so publicly. Now, he hasn't necessarily taken the specific actions, but he's pointed very clearly in that direction. And he does seem to be doing everything else he said he was going to do. So, well, he hasn't done it yet. I don't know when this um, podcast is going to air. Um, there's rumors that, that, that it could happen imminently, that, that the sanctions could be lifted. But maybe it doesn't. So, you know, and, and to, um, you know, maybe he won't change. Maybe this will be the one thing that he doesn't do that he said from his, his um, uh, you know, from his campaign trail. But it's pretty worrying. And, and I've seen enough stuff and I've seen the Russians celebrating in advance to, to be very worried about what's going to happen with these sanctions and, and what, what it will do to the world. If these sanctions are lifted, I mean, it's very, very dangerous. I worry that that this is just going to be obscured by all the smoke around around Trump. I mean, Trump is a is a chaos monkey. You know, he he creates such chaos with so many things that are so extreme and confusing going on at the same time that it's hard to stay focused on on any one of them, and it's very hard to say. No, this Russia stuff is actually more important than everything else because it goes to the core question of the legitimacy of the president and the legitimacy of the election. And we need to just talk about that and forget about everything else. But it's really hard to do that. I mean, already this week, it's gone from topic A to about topic C. Well, at, at, at the end of the day, there, there's there, there's something even more important than the legitimacy of any election, which is the safety, security and, and non extermination of the world if Russia is basically given a green light to go forward, whether whether Trump, whether they did or they didn't do any of this stuff. If if these sanctions are lifted and if Trump follows through on these threats about dismantling or withdrawing from NATO, then we're going to be in a, a mess, a, a, a mess of unparalleled proportions that will be almost impossible to fix. I mean, Vlad, what Vladimir Putin, he, he's got basically two objectives. One is to destroy um, NATO. And the second is to destroy the EU. Why does he want to destroy NATO and the EU? Because these are organizations that are bigger than him. 
that he can't, he can pick people off, he can pick countries off, he can do whatever he wants one by one, but he can't do it against these big organizations. He doesn't want them in place because he wants to go around dominating countries, creating vassal states, corrupting, taking the resources from putting in place his own leaders of, of, of surrounding countries, um, because then he can expand his klepto- kleptocratic empire. And if we don't keep him in check, which is what we've been doing over the last few years, he will do that stuff. And what will happen in the process is that countries will get overrun. And perhaps in some cases, Europe will then, European, certain European countries will have to end up in war at war with Russia. And if we think that we're not going to end up ultimately involved in those wars, sooner or later, that's very naive. And so we could end up in a, in a truly existential crisis that just starts with being nice to Russia and lifting sanctions, which is what what's being proposed right now. Right. I mean, Putin clearly wants to restore the Russian sphere of influence covering former Soviet republics and Eastern European countries, which are now doing their best to, to come under the Western umbrella of, of NATO and the EU, where even where they haven't become uh, full full members. Uh, but I guess the question is, what do you think is next? I mean, is the kind of endgame for Putin undermine NATO, undermine the EU, project power, get people to do his bidding? Or is it going to look more like a next Crimea, where there's really a place where he's going to go in, where he's going to cross a border, where he's going to assert military dominance? I don't think he's got enough money to um, to go in and, and, and militarily take over countries. And so in his perfect scenario, he doesn't, he doesn't um, roll all the troops into Ukraine. What he does is he, he weakens Ukraine to such an extent through different through different actions that eventually the Ukrainians throw out Poroshenko, their president. He then manipulates Putin and then manipulates the election as he knows how to do and puts in place either the guy who was run out of the country for all the corruption before Yanukovych or something like that. And then once he's happy with his people in place, then he can then uh, reorient their businesses so that he and his cronies get get a share of all the revenues and, and it becomes a sort of um, failed kleptocratic state surrounding Russia where he can do all the stuff that he wants to do. I think he'd love to basically do that with with all the countries surrounding him without military, without having to send the military in. But the trouble is that that in certain countries, he's not going to be able to achieve that. And then he will have to send the military in. And when he does, then then different countries and different allies will have to make choices about whether or not we want to fight for the Estonians against the Russians or whether Europeans want to do that or whatever. And, you know, it's just a very dangerous situation to have a a person who's effectively a mafia guy. He's like a, a mafia boss who has all the powers of a sovereign state and who's looking to extort everything from everybody surrounding him. You mentioned Viktor Yanukovych, the the former pro-Russian dictatorial leader in Ukraine. He had some Trump connections too. Paul Manafort is a name that popped up was working for Yanukovych. And, you know, it's another one of these connections to, to Trump that just seems so extraordinary. There's a whole bunch. There's this weird guy, Carter Page, who was supposedly a big financier in Moscow. And I was a financier in Moscow. And I've never heard of Carter Page. <laughs> I don't know where <laughs> was this he guy... there when you were there. He wasn't there when I was there, but I, I knew everybody who was there. There's nobody who I didn't know who was there. I was the biggest foreign investor in the country. I never heard of Carter Page. I don't know where this guy came from, but he was hanging around Russia and he's been going back and forth after he was no longer employed wherever he was employed giving speeches about how sanctions are bad and how um, America is bad and, and, and so on and so forth. 
It's a very dubious, um, really strange character, this Carter Page. He was the one who supposedly got the Republican National Committee to change. The only platform change they asked for was the hard line on the occupation of Crimea, which they got changed. That was apparently Carter Page lobbying on behalf of Donald Trump. Right. Or or lobbying on behalf of some Russians that that put him in there. I mean, he, that, that guy is a very suspicious guy. So but he hasn't gotten a job. Manafort hasn't gotten a job. I mean, some of these people who have actually clearly taken Russian money or alleged to have taken Russian money are still they still seem to be on the periphery of the administration. Well, thank God for that. Hopefully they don't they don't get any closer into the into the center of the whole thing. Now, the only hope that, that we really have with, with, with all these strange things going on. Is that this is we're only in the first week of this of this story, and he's sort of running the country out of the White House um, before all the the, se- the State Department and the Defense Department and the CIA. Everyone finds their seats and starts to in, and to starts to exert their their judgment and their influence. And and there are a lot of people around him who are extremely reasonable people as far as Russia is concerned. And I wouldn't I wouldn't want to um, think that Steve Bannon is the one who's going to ultimately determine military policy towards Russia and, and so on when once once uh, Mattis is in place, the defense secretary and people like that. Bill, you must feel a little like a marked man. I mean, you were tried in absentia in Russia. They would love to to have you arrested somewhere and, and extradite you. And, and due to you, what they did to Sergei Magnitsky, you know, what's standing between you and that is Western governments standing up to Putin, and suddenly you you have a president of the United States who is on Putin's side, not on your side? Yeah, so um, it definitely um, de- definitely um, reduces my security in the world having having that that situation. But you know, at, at the same time, there's um, I live in London. Um, the British government is firmly on my side. Uh, the European governments are firmly on my side, and so um, I, you know. I just have to pick pick my moments where where I where I take risk and where I don't. But London has not been a completely safe haven. I mean, you worry about the uh, the the polonium soup and the and the uh, the the umbrella the poison umbrella tip. I mean, you know, do you you Putin clearly is out to get you personally. He is. I, I've been threatened specifically and personally with uh, murder, with rendition, with arrest, with all sorts of other stuff. And um, obviously, I've got to live a different life than I did before all this stuff started happening and different life than just about everyone else I know. But, um, you know, I've I found my ways of, of dealing with it. But it's uh, obviously uh, not the most pleasant thing in the world. I've been speaking to William Browder. He's the head of the Magnitsky Justice Campaign. Read his book, Red Notice. It's out in paperback. You won't be sorry. Bill, thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. And don't you know, Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. John D. Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. Hey, I've got two requests for you. One is follow us on Twitter. We've now got a handle. It's at RealTrumpCast. We thought that was kind of clever. And hey... Have you left us a rating and review in iTunes? If you like the show, we'd appreciate it. It helps other people find out about Trumpcast. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.
I have been told by many, many people and people who know this, that delivery boys and girls are refusing to deliver the New York Times all over the country because they know it's fake news. They know it's fake news and they don't want to be a part of it. These are kids who are 10, 11, 12, parents age. They don't want to be part of the lies and dishonesty spread by the New York Times, the failing New York Times, which I hear is down to less than 1,000 subscribers. That, that's nothing. That's nothing. That's nothing. I get I get that many people liking a tweet in seconds after I post it. So the New York Times, adios, amigos. On this edition of Trumpcast, Jacob Weisberg had a back and forth conversation with Bill Browder, the investor and author, about how the Trump administration may affect the United States relationship with Russia. As part of that conversation, they discussed work done by the firm Fusion GPS and its co-founder, Glenn Simpson, on behalf of the company Prevazon, owned by the son of the vice president of Russian Railways. By that discussion, Trumpcast and Slate did not intend to imply that Fusion GPS or Mr. Simpson were directly working for the Russian government or Russian intelligence. Fusion GPS and Mr. Simpson state that they have never engaged in any lobbying on behalf of Russia or Russian agents, and they assert that their only work for a Russian entity was in the Prevazon litigation at the request of the law firm Baker Hostetler. Because Fusion GPS and Mr. Simpson do not believe they were engaged in lobbying activity, they contend that they were not required to file under the Foreign Agents Registration Act.